Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And, and so it was through that relationship that um, I was here for six years training groups all over this city. And so I feel very close to this city. There's a, I also want to pay tribute to my friend and leader, and I'm going to talk about him later, Pastor Darrell Webster. I talk about him and what is being done by his ministry all over this country uh, because it is it's really visionary. There's a prayer that I utter each time that I speak and I commend to you. And that is, Lord, give me the strength to tell and pursue the truth, especially when it's inconvenient to me. Because if you want to go someplace you haven't been, you've got to be willing to do something you haven't done. Or as my grassroots folks say, if you keep doing what you do, you keep getting what you got. <laughs> and Dr. King said the highest form of maturity is the ability to be self-critical. To be able to look at what you're doing and acknowledge that perhaps you need to be moving in a different direction. I see my goal this morning as threefold. One is to inform, the second is to inspire, but the third one and more important is to challenge you, to challenge the way you think and the direction in which we're going. Because this country is in trouble now. When we fought the Second World War, even though we had racial division, segregation was a point, part, blacks were being lynched, we had a divided nation, but culturally we were cohesive. We believed in country, family, and faith. Our families were intact. The black community had 85% of black men and black women raising children. We were not afraid of our grandparents, were not afraid of their grandchildren. If we had to fight the Second World War with the state of our culture today, we would not win. And so therefore, it is imperative of us as we look at the issues of poverty today to understand that it has an importance far beyond just helping some poor folks renovate and improve a community. We have got to begin to come together and heal as a nation so that we can adequately resist the foreign forces who are lopping off children's heads because they're Christians. Come on now. And they are recruiting among our disaffected young people in our cities. So it is important for us to offer an alternative. What these kids are looking for is a cause, and a cause cannot be satisfied with a car. Those elements from uh, afar would not be recruiting in 
Second Emmanuel Baptist Church. Because in that place, they have been given a cause. Christ is filled their life. The enemies of this nation would never come into that church to recruit. Because they know it would be useless. But they would go to a bar or a job training center. And so what I want to talk about today is how to apply old values to a new vision. I wish some of you would have been with me last night at the church when they were talking about debt-free, when people are talking about poverty. Poverty isn't just the absence of money. In fact, the lesson that I took from last night's session was that most of us spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people who don't like us. <laughs> and these are not just poor folks I'm talking about. <laughs> and so I think if, if, but in looking for solutions to, to the problems of poverty, there are important answers that we found that have an implication not just for the poor, but for the sons and daughters of Pharaoh as well. And for the defense of our nation. So I would like to, to try to pull this together. So, but I also want to, to, to modify my resume a little bit so you'll know where I'm coming from. The Apostle Paul said, who were you before you were baptized? <clears throat> And before I was baptized, I was raised by a single mom in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. My dad died when I was nine, leaving us in a troubled neighborhood uh, to raise five children, four boys and a girl. And so therefore, in that kind of, it was all blue collar, low income neighborhood, with no professionals living in my neighborhood. But we were armed and equipped with important values. None of my friends, it was none of my friends who could not read. And I know that because in, in my day, you had to read out loud. <laughs> Some of y'all my age will remember that. <laughs> so I know no one, everybody could read. Also, every home in my neighborhood had a mom and dad raising children. And grandmama was not afraid to walk the streets. And this was in that very troubled time. However, within the last 20 years, I have lost three members of my immediate family to street violence. A 17-year-old niece who was raped and murdered uh, and, and on the streets of Philadelphia. A brother who was pushed from a building and murdered at age 29, leaving five children. Um, two other, uh, one other nephew who was shot to death by a young man who he grew up with two blocks of his house. He is now serving life without parole, and these two mothers see each other every week at the market. None of these, and two other nephews, were violently assaulted and they survived. None of those murders or assaults were done by a white police officer or any member of the Klan or the White Citizens Council. They were killed by people that looked like them so therefore, the challenges that I think that we face today 
cannot be found in Ferguson. All right. Mm -hmm. There are people who are coming into our community to try to fan the flames of dissent because they are grievance merchants. The rich legacy of the civil rights movement has been hijacked by people who have transformed it into a race grievance industry where they profit from our despair. 51 of the people arrested for rioting in Ferguson were not from Ferguson. Just one. The public buses were shot, so there's no bus service. The 30 businesses were burned, so there's no place for people to shop or to go to work. The Salvation Army has to bring in food and water to those last grassroots schools. They don't have cars. But the people coming in, telling them that their problem is race, they go back to their rich neighborhoods where they're in their $2,000 suits, telling us that our biggest problem is race. Evil is evil. And so therefore, it is important. Buster Soros and I, what we're doing, we are developing town meetings all over this country. And I hope you will do something like that here. To prevent a Ferguson, the police need to come together with grassroots people, small business owners in the church to have a, a plan, a crisis intervention plan. When there's a natural disaster that hits, we have a plan to respond. We need to have a crisis plan for man-made disasters. So that when incidents like that come up, people won't call New York for help, but they will call across the town to, to Emmanuel Church to say there are some issues, but those issues must be settled by you all in this city and in your own community to prevent people coming from outside to destroy your community. So that is what we're hoping. We've already had one town meeting, and we're going to have others throughout the country. But let me just go into why, what we can do to address poverty in this country, and it's, it's most important. Because what we're doing ain't work. We have $22 trillion in the last 50 years to address poverty. Prior to the 1960s, the responsibility for caring for the poor was thusly done by each ethnic group in itself. But because of the crisis, we began, government began to intervene. The problem is that 70 cents of every dollar spent on the poor in the last 50 years goes not to the poor. It goes to those that serve the poor. They ask not which problems are solvable, but which ones are fundable this year. It means that we have created a commodity out of poor people. And as long as you have people who make their careers, and these are not evil people, but they are trapped in institutional arrangements that causes good people to do bad things. And also when we're addressing poverty, we've got to understand that you cannot generalize about poor people. Everybody isn't poor for the same reason. There are four categories. There are people who are just broke. <laughs> they just ain't got no money. They lost a job or a breadwinner died, a factory moved away. There's something. 
they're just broke, but their character is intact. And they use welfare the way it was intended as an ambulance service, not a transportation system. They use it as a bridge over troubled times. And so services work for them, and they're gone. Category two are like the woman who look at the disincentives to be independent. Like the woman in Milwaukee some years ago, a single mom who saved $5,000 of her welfare check to send her daughter to college. And when the system found out about it, she was brought into court and charged with a felony. She had to give all the money back, and then she was fine. She said, fine, then I won't ever try to be independent. Because if I get a raise on my job, I'm going to lose health benefits. So for people like her, all you got to do is change the disincentives. But her character's intact. And then you have people that are handicapped physically. They need to be careful. But the category four is the one that troubles most of us and creates all of the havoc. And those are people who are poor because of the chances that they take and the choices that they take. Their challenges are moral and spiritual, not economic. Giving money directly to a corrupt character injures them with the helping hand. And so there must be intervention on their part. And again, their crisis, and, and even category four, you cannot address their problems by giving them jobs, education, and housing. Right, right, There has to be a character overhaul. They have to be transformed. They have to be redeemed. And the agents of redemption are very seldom a therapist. As Pastor Freddie, my uh, deceased friend, he said, if our problems were economic, God would have sent an economist. <laughs> if our problems were education, he would have sent an educator. If our problems were philosophical, he would have sent a philosopher. But because our problems are sin, he sent a savior. Yeah. And unfortunately, government programs a lot of times, we redefine sin to illness. So when a person now is a drug addict or an alcoholic, they are ill, so therefore qualify for SSI. So you can go down on Skid Row in any community and see big billboards of lawyers recruiting drunks to get signed up for SSI. And a friend of mine out there with a, photo a photographer and a, a reporter, went to the local bar when the SSI checks go to the bar owner. Because they are able to assign them, and when they get to the drunks, get credit all month. When the SSI checks comes in, he signs them in their presence, and he gives them, so the alcohol overdoses die. Uh, it peaks during the three days of when these checks arrive. These are the kind of insidious policies that we have often that injures with the helping hand. It doesn't matter. What, what, what makes it uh, difficult to change is that this is not malice. Something that is evil and malicious you can confront with violence. It's when people think they are helping you when they're destroying you is the most difficult kind of challenge that we face. And so what must we do to change it? 
As I tell people, any speaker that comes before you and leaves you more depressed than you were before, you invited the wrong person. <laughs> because people are not motivated to change and improve by constantly reminding them of losses they should avoid. People are motivated by victories that are possible. The problem is we people on the left tend to look at all poor people as if they're category one. Yeah. And people on the right tend to look at poor people as if they're all category four. Oh. So we keep missing each other when we talk about an anti-poverty strategy. And so what are the solutions? First of all, we have to recognize that the solutions exist within the body experiencing the problem. If you go to your doctor and you have a cold, and the doctor says, oh, I think you need a transplant. You would run out the door. <laughs> because any effective solution first tries to do that which is least intrusive. Well, try resting. In fact, let me aspirin. Let me give you medicine. Then, at, because of interventions don't work, you have to then increase it. So what we do with poverty programs, we start with a transplant. We go into a low-income neighborhood and we want to know how many people are raising children that are dropping out of school, in jail, on drugs. We go and write a proposal, and then we get the proposal funded by public or private, and then we prescribe solutions, and when they don't work, we say, these people are worse off than we thought. We need more money. Yeah. Yeah. And so as the budget expands, the problem gets worse. We never challenge the nature of the intervention. So what we believe we have found to be effective is we take the same principles that operate in our market economy and put it in it and apply it to the social economy. In the market economy, only 3% of the people are entrepreneurs, but they produce 70% of the jobs. So the social entrepreneurs are living in these neighborhoods. These are the people that go to the houses of the 30% of people are raising children that are not dropping out of school in jail and drugs and find out what they are doing. Or you go to the people who were fallen, but through God's grace have been transformed and redeemed because then they can serve as powerful witnesses to others that just because you were born in poverty, it means you don't have to always be of it. a mentor, they need a witness. Build them a house and give them a good job or, or give them some clothes, then they're going to be changed. No, that does not work. You got to start on the inside and change that. Then you can modify the outside. And no matter how well intended, the other mistake that I think a lot of funders make is what they is rather than looking for what when, when you have a good intention, you come to a neighborhood and you say, Well, I think what they need is an education program mentor. So you parachute that in. What you should do is first find out what's already going on in that neighborhood. Find out who's already providing that service. Go on and add to what somebody else. Because I, I remember in one city. <coughs> You had 200 kids every night playing basketball on a rundown little 
uh, uh, broken up basketball court, but the kids were there. And then four blocks away, there was a new boys and girls club with a swimming pool and a gym, no kids. Wow. <laughs> and so what they did was hire outreach workers to persuade these kids to come to their facility. But because it was run by people that didn't, they didn't trust, they didn't go there. So what you should do instead is rather than build a facility where there are trained professionals, it meets all the standards, take your resources to where the kids are, or where the solutions are, where the leadership is, and then partner with people there. But the difficulty that professionals have when they come to meet grassroots people is learning to be on tap, but not on top. How do you come? Because the biggest barrier we face today, ladies and gentlemen, isn't race, it's class. People who are well-educated engage in what I call intellectual imperialism. We assume that, that the answers have to come from well-educated people. That if people speak and they break verbs, dangle participles, and split infinitives, then they can't be <laughs> But not in our social marketplace, but in our, our regular commercial marketplace, we don't. Nobody's going to ask Steve Jobs if he graduated from college. Oh, or Bill Gates. Because in our market economy, we know that it is not certification that counts, but outcomes and results. And studies will tell you that in, in, the commercial, in our commercial economy, entrepreneurs tend to be C students, not A students. See, A students, smart people, have to have all the answers before they act. And by the time they act, the opportunity is gone. But C students, C students are people like myself, who I don't know but 30% of the, but I act 100% on the 30% that I do know. Yeah. <laughs> and I will fail and get back up and fail again, get back up and fail again until I get it. Because I will outwork anybody. When you're not so smart, you have to work hard. <laughs> and smart people, as I say, do not earn their PhDs and MBAs. They hire them. Let me say that again. Smart people do not earn their PhDs and MBAs. They hire them. The other point is that we have got to be able to engage in innovation. Do you realize that 60% of Apple companies' revenues come from a product that didn't exist five years ago? didn't exist. So no one did research and said, do you need an iPhone? No. When you know there's a need, you create a response to it, give it to people, and then let what you do influence it. We need the same level of innovation when it comes to the social marketplace. Rather than having people fill out an application, a, a proposal that lists all the things they're going to do, and they send it to you, then you come back six months, did you follow all these things? Well, maybe half of what I proposed didn't work. 
But I found in the course of operating um, three new ways of, of yeah, but if you do that, you're violating the terms of the grant. <laughs> That's why those of you who are grant makers need to be venture philanthropists. You need to invest in people that are doing unusual things in unusual places, affecting unusual changes. And I'll give you one example of that. In the 60s, the Swiss were the watchmakers. All the, they had all the market share. And two engineers who were Swiss watchmakers came to them and said, we have a new idea for a watch. And all of the experts who were locked in tradition said, but it don't look like the watches we used to. There are no gears. You can't wind it up. So these two engineers couldn't get any support. So they went to an international watch show. And they displayed their new type of watch. And two men came along from Texas Instruments and a Japanese venture capitalist by the name of Seiko. <laughs> he invested in it because he saw the promise. And he invested, and within three years, 80% of the Swiss lost market share because people stopped buying wind-up watches and bought uh, a, 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 a crystal watch. So I say that to say what we're lacking in our social marketplace is a kind of innovation. The kind of innovation that Pastor Webster has with his boot camp. I talk about Indianapolis and the boot camp and, and, and Emmanuel Church all over this country. Why? Because he and his, and his ministry is one of the most socially entrepreneurial events. He has learned to transform and redeem some of the most troubled people in some of the most troubled circumstances. Like Kurt Moore here that I talk about here, who spent 13 years in prison and came out. He came out of his hell. He realized that C.S. Lewis is that the keys and the locks on hell are on the inside. Those keys are on the inside. And so Kurt Moore, once he came to himself and accepted Christ, he picked up the key that was inside his cell, unlocked it, and walked out. And then the church provided him with opportunity. But opportunity wouldn't have meant anything if he didn't have his own mind right and his heart right. And now he is a blessing to others. What we need to do in this city and around the country is we need to multiply the Kurt Moore's a thousand times over because he now is a responsible father, a responsible leader, and there are other uh, uh, neighborhood-based initiatives in this city that are incubating uh, these social entrepreneurs. We know that the human body is oriented towards health because of these antibodies. And collectively, they mean immune system. If we were to take the resources that we are wasting on conventional approaches, and bring it to these boot camp type experiences in our neighborhood. Provide them with the investment that they need. Not the direction that you want to give, but with the resources that they need and just turn them loose. And then say to them, show me the consequence, show me the, the Kurt Moores. 
and they will then produce, and together this country can be healed. But we won't do it as long as we're stuck in our own narrow place. And so let me just conclude by saying to you that the reason that I think you should support neighborhood level intervention and antibodies, not because it's just going to help reclaim and restore this communities, but it also can speak to the sons and daughters of Pharaoh. You see, what America, the reason that kids are being recruited to ISIS is because a lot of our kids are growing up feeling absolutely empty. There's no moral content to their lives. And nothing is more lethal than to have someone growing up without a feeling of content or purpose in their life. When Cain slew Abel, God could have condemned him to death, but he condemned him to a fate worse than death, and that is to wander without content or purpose. If grassroots leaders and people can find purpose and content in the midst of these drug-infested, crime-ridden neighborhoods, they have something to export to the sons and daughters of Pharaoh. In Plano, Texas, an upper-income white neighborhood, young teenage kids are becoming gummers. They are chewing pure heroin. And when you do, you become addicted immediately. In other places, in Orange County, uh, California, the sons and daughters of empty kids are being recruited by the Aryan nation. ISIS is recruiting among disaffected young people. And so the future of this nation depends on us successfully competing against ISIS by providing an opportunity for our kids to achieve moral content and purpose to their life. So it is important for us to come together as a citizen, black, white, brown. ISIS doesn't care. If you're an American, they want your head. And therefore, recognizing that threat, we must abandon some of the conventional approaches and come together in a spirit of love and godly commitment to one another to change not only this city and to heal it, to redeem it, to transform it, but let it be a model to the nation about how people came together and demonstrated that God's grace is deserving and his blessings are in this land. God bless you and thank you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.